we had everyone sending us a picture saying, hey guys, Shane Bolt is going to his surgery with a blue smart. That's like the most expensive knee in the world. <laughs> Two days later, he arrived to the Olympics with the Blue Smart. We have blue bars, so everybody was seeing the Blue Smart. Director of Marketing Online. He's a fan of Tony Hawk, and one day, you know, a friend of him said, Hey, look what Tony Hawk just posted. And there was on Instagram a picture of two suitcases. I know a black suitcase, I don't know which brand, and a Blue Smart. My name is Alejo. I'm an industrial designer. That's my background. And we started Blue Smart, which is was, it was the world's first smart suitcase. We started three and a half years ago. It was just three guys with an idea. And today we launched two products already in the market. And we just launched a month and a half ago our four new products, which is our second line. The team is now 40 people in three offices, New York, Buenos Aires, and Hong Kong. We have around 40,000 units in 114 countries already distributed. And we can't wait to have our new products on the, on the streets soon. Why don't you describe to us what is a smart suitcase? Sure. So a smart suitcase basically is a suitcase that can connect to your phone by virtue of connecting to your phone, enables different sets of features and benefits to the guy who's using it basically, which is, you know, distance alerts. If you move away, you can lock it and lock it from your phone. You can set it up to lock it itself when you move away. So you don't have to be thinking of, you know, locking it down and locking it when you move. It has a built-in GPS with a 3G module. So you know that you'll never lose your suitcase basically because you can track it anywhere in the world. It has weight sensors. So before you leave your home, you know the exact weight of your suitcase on your phone and the app connects to your flight itineraries, knows what's the next flight you're taking. It will tell you if you're approved to take that weight or if you need to pay any over fees. Can I jump on that real quick? So how are you able to yes. keep track of that with all the different airlines? Was that pretty difficult? Well, today, one of our investors is Amadeus, which is there are two major software backend software companies for airlines, which is Amadeus and Sabre. And they all have all the flight information from all, all the planes in the world. So basically, we connect to their API and we know gate, flight status, if your flight's going to be delayed, you will we'll let you know if there's a gate change, seat, everything, basically. That's pretty standard based on the airline and the flight you're taking. You have a weight limitation. Basically, what you do today from the app is you insert your flight number. You will get all that information and notifications if you want to set that up. No, I think that's pretty smart, too. So how about, Thomas, why did you start a company? Were you just losing your luggage everywhere or something? <laughs> well, actually, we were Diego, Tommy, and me at the very beginning. Diego comes from a software company. He used to make a, an app for booking hostels. Tommy had more like a business and operations background. He had some experience manufacturing products in Asia and distributing around the world. My background is in product design. Because of our work, we all we were all traveling around the world. We, we met in New York, but we were traveling around the world because of business. And we started talking about that, basically, yeah, lost luggage, how, you know, we enjoy our life traveling everywhere because of work, getting to know new people, you know, new faces and, and keep working, basically, not like holidays. There was always that stress in terms of what you're carrying. It's your home, right? In a way, when you're carrying everything, your work, your, you know, your clothes. And when you lose your suitcase, it can be a pain in the ass. I had my suitcase lost at least five times. Four of them, I recovered it. The one I, you know, I didn't want it to recover already was, was too. They found it, but it was a pain in the ass to recover it. So I forget about it. Diego had a more um, dramatic experience coming down to Argentina with Christmas presents. And he arrived here on the 23rd. The airline lost his suitcase. He brought all the gifts. So there were no gifts for Christmas, basically. You know, he found the suitcase eventually five days later, but 
know, Christmas was already gone, so Santa Claus. <laughs> and I mean, that, that was the, that was the kickoff. Like, okay, if there are, I mean, everything is becoming smart, why can a suitcase not be smart? You have a more smart toilets. I don't know. Everything is smart today. But then it took us a year to actually come up with something that makes sense. You know, not everything has to be smart just because it's possible. That was basically, you know, talking to hundreds of travelers and understanding what was their, you know, their concern when they were traveling. And there's always like that stress, you know, that you might lose your things or, you know, you might, someone might take your things or, you know, you don't have that peace of mind because your stuff is away from you when you're flying. And then other things like, you know, you're, you're always running out of battery and if you're working, it's a pain in the ass. So why doesn't your suitcase, if already has to have a battery, why doesn't charge your phone? And that's how we come up with the whole concept. Yeah, no, I think it's pretty smart. So obviously you both had some strong pain points, I guess, there and at the uh, airport. And so was it just the one in Argentina? Is he out of Argentina as well? We, the three of us are from Argentina, actually. Okay. And that's where you're joining us today? Today I am in Buenos Aires. Yes. We opened an office in Buenos Aires uh, a year ago now. We know everybody here. We had access to pretty good talent and it made a lot of sense. And yeah, today I'm here and I'm flying to Hong Kong next week. <laughs> I'm always on a plane. I think you might've been in Hong Kong last time I saw that on LinkedIn. So yeah. Yes. So yeah. Tell us why you travel so much. Are you just testing out your luggage everywhere and, and writing it off as a business expense? <laughs> no, of course I do test it. I'm actually, as is the, we are traveling with the new products every time we travel to test it. We learn a lot, but I think the main reason is we started this globally. It just happened. I was working in New York. I had a company in Argentina providing consulting services, design and innovation to companies in Europe and in the US. Diego was in San Francisco. Tommy was in New York at the time, but traveling a lot to Hong Kong. We met there, but then we started working remotely because we were always traveling. So the first, I would say the first year, even if we kept, we kept bringing people to the team, working part-time, helping, supporting. We had a guy in China, a guy in Taiwan, a guy in Hong Kong, one person in San Francisco, one in Buenos Aires. It just made sense that we were actually getting the best from everywhere. We found that people in San Francisco had a lot of knowledge in technology companies that you know, from our investors came from there. In New York, we had a lot of connections to how to build a brand. In Hong Kong, the logistics and manufacturing were very strong. So it made sense to take the best talent from every city. And it made sense and it was possible. So we, I don't know, I think I would say that the first year we probably made, I don't know, 2,000 hours or 3,000 hours of Skype probably <laughs> to get the concept. When you travel in all these places, how are you finding these people in this city? And can you tell us about how y'all today, you said you have about 40 people, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And how do y'all all communicate with all these different time zones? Because I think that's an important thing for us to learn about. The first two years was like... I have no idea how we managed to do it. Today is more organized <laughs> because in Buenos Aires, we do a lot of design and R&D, customer experience, and New York is more, you know, commercial and marketing. And Hong Kong is more into quality control, manufacturing, development, and logistics, manufacturing operations. So basically, we now have the team in, there's two people in Argentina that support the communications with Hong Kong. So they take turns and one works at night on Tuesday, the other one on Thursdays. Yeah, we managed to do that. Actually, New York and Buenos Aires is the same time zone, so we talk every day. It's not a problem. It's one hour difference only. In terms of finding people, I will say that Hong Kong and China was like the major challenge. Cultural differences are there. They exist. You know, how people work, how you relate to people. So what we did is on the first year, we created the concept and the, the, the prototypes and we validated that technology was feasible. We launched a crowdfunding campaign 
to see if that made sense. Campaign went very well. We, we raised $2 million, 10,000 units to 100 countries. That's when we said, okay, this is not part-time project. This is becoming true, which was what we wanted. We decided to move to Asia. At that moment, we were 11 people and we all moved to Asia for a year, myself a year and a half, because we needed to be there to get to know how business is done there. Did you have a lot of money from it? How are you hiring all these people with it when it seems like you're still getting started and hadn't made any sales for it yet? So for the first year, we worked for free. <laughs> it was us. At some point, we had our savings and we all had our jobs. At some point, I would say seven or eight months after we launched, we raised a small round of capital between friends and family. I would say we raised somewhere between eighty dollars and $100,000. That was money to you know make the campaign, build a prototype, test the technology and pay our trips, basically. We were very lucky because it was very hard actually to find someone that believed in us because the idea sounded great, but it also sounded very difficult to achieve. Building the product, hardware, software, marketing, it was like, like a complex project, but we were lucky to have, you know, customers, friends, and family who knew us and believed in us. I would say not that much in the project, but more in us. <laughs> With that money, we started paying ourselves and the people who were helping us that the idea was that, okay, if the campaign succeeds, we're going to make this a full-time job. If not, it doesn't make any sense. So everybody kept their jobs until we launched the campaign. We worked by night and you know, some of us, we took a few days off to go to Asia, come back. After we launched the campaign, we had the money from the campaign, but we also got accepted into Y Combinator in Mountain View. That helped us with a lot of, lot of advice and knowledge from very experienced people, but as well with very good connections in terms of raising capital. We raised a round of capital that helped us with working capital and building the team, you know, the first team. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that experience? I guess you had already met your co-founders at that point. So tell us about like moving there and then and what you learned at Y Combinator. I will say, I mean, for, for Y Combinator, we were in a very, particularly in a very, I think, special situation because we have most of the companies are software companies. There are some hardware companies, but the speed and the, the way you work when you do hardware is very different from software because, you know, you work for a year and a half to launch a product. Then you have the product on the market and it's not that easy to iterate and change it. So the way you think, the way you plan, the way you build a team is very different from software. But we did have a software component and that's where we learned the most on how to approach and think on the software. So what was different from us with other companies is that at that moment we had, I don't know, 14,000 customers probably. We had the product sold, but not delivered. So there was a lot of expectation but the market was in a way validated because we had sold the product, we already were paying for it. We had sold, I don't know, probably $2.8 million in revenue already, but we hadn't delivered the product. So basically what we were trying to learn there is how to build the company and not that much into how to build the product, which is what you know most of the startups there are doing that, actually trying to learn how to decide on the product roadmap strategically. We didn't have that chance. That was late for us. We already had the product defined and sold. We were actually manufacturing to deliver it a year late. But the, and the most precious, I think, experience there was to see so many founders doing so many amazing things and challenging and everyone struggling with, I will say, the same problems, all of us, and then very different problems according to your product and your industry, right? It was how to learn, you know, when someone gives you advice, how to know if, you know, that advice applies to you or not. That was the most challenging and I would say the most rich learnings that we get there. 
Well, I'm looking at your like your Indiegogo for I guess this is model 2.0. Yes. Well, it's pretty cool that you got Usain Bolt and Tony Hawk to help. I guess I don't know if it's advertising is if it's free or you know it tells how that you got them. Those are two people most people should know if they don't. <laughs> Usain Bolt's basically the fastest guy in the whole world, and then Tony Hawk's yeah. the best skateboarder in the world. So <laughs> I'll tell you the Tony Hawk story first. I mean, both are pretty weird. I think we're very lucky actually. So Tony Hawk. We have a guy in our office, Diego, he's a fan. He's a director of marketing online. He's a fan of Tony Hawk. And one day, you know, a friend of him said, hey, look what, you know, Tony Hawk just posted. And there was on Instagram a picture of he was going away on a trip. And there were two suitcases, a black suitcase, I don't know which brand, and a blue smart. So it was his suitcase and her wife's suitcase, his wife's suitcase. So his wife had bought Blue Smart. He took a picture. He couldn't contain himself. So he texted him saying like, hey, Tony, I love the fact that you're using a Blue Smart. I work here. Big fan. Thank you. And the guy, he replies saying, guys, I love your product. I don't remember right now if he bought it for his wife or himself, but I think it was, I don't know, a few emails coming back and forth. And Diego said to Tony, we would love to do something with you and you want eventually, whatever, just ask your fans. Okay. And then a few days later, he wrote an email with ideas for a video. He said, I want to do this. Let's rent a camera. And he, he sent like a script. I don't know if you saw the actual Tony Hawk video, but it's a video where he's chasing his blue smart all around San Diego down the hill with his skateboard. It's pretty cool. So he came up with the idea. He wrote an email saying, I have an idea where I'm standing in line waiting for coffee. Then the app says, hey, Tony, your flight is two hours away from leaving. You should go. So he starts skateboarding with a suitcase and a taxi cross. Wait, wait, wait. He came up with this idea? Y'all didn't even have to... No, no, no. Wait, how is that even possible? I don't know. I think to me... I believe you. I'm going to start watching it, but keep going. Yeah, tell me. I think that every case is very different, right? But I think that he liked that there was another product with four wheels out there. To me, that was the thing, you know? I don't know if he likes the suitcase or not, but I think that he likes the fact that it has four wheels. If you're Tony Hawk and you see something with four wheels... You see that and you imagine like rolling with it. I don't know. So he basically gets attacked by a taxi. The suitcase keeps going down the hill. He looks at the app, tracks the suitcase and starts skateboarding down the hills. He does pretty amazing things until he gets down and gets the blue smart. And for Hussein Bolt, it was very different, but kind of the same story. There was a, a news, I don't know, some media that he was going, I don't know where. He had a problem in his knee. I don't know if you remember, like a year ago before the Olympics. So he was getting surgery. He was next to the gate in an airport and his knee was on top of the blue smart. We had everyone sending us a picture saying, hey guys, Usain Bolt is going to his surgery with a blue smart. That's like the most expensive knee in the world. <laughs> and he's on top of the, on top of the blue smart. So we did the same thing. We reached out to him and say, are you traveling with this? And he said, yes. And I think it was a few days later, he arrived to the Olympics with the Blue Smart. We have blue bars. So everybody was seeing the Blue Smart, Usain Bolt. So we decided to ask him if he wanted to be on the video. And he said, yeah, sure. Well, I'd been kind of listening for a while. I did listen to your first Patreon call. And um, there's a couple guys in there that for what they did or what they were doing, it kind of intrigued me. And um, then I've heard a couple of the commercials or whatever that so-and-so was going to be on there. Clicked on your new episode the other day and I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I got to do this. I just joined Patreon to support you guys. So that's something that helps you guys out. Keep doing what you're doing. That's cool. You know? Yeah, I appreciate it. With the Patreon membership, you get this one-on-one call. Plus, we're doing two group calls a month now with past guests. Plus, there's an exclusive Patreon feed where you get special episodes if you're a Patreon member. Oh, man. Nice. I'll listen to that too. Awesome.
So what you're talking about, well, I guess maybe just particular on this piece of luggage that he was carrying, but I don't know if all of them had it or whatever. What makes it a little different is that handle that you actually pull out from the luggage. I'm looking at the picture of it. It was blue. What's this like light kind of blue that pops. So since y'all are called blue smart or, you know, it, it looks different. Like usually almost every handle you would see on luggage there is black or gray, but y'all made it blue. So it made it pop a little bit differently. Yeah, well, I mean, that part was intentionally. The other one <laughs> just happened to make it pop up. No, yeah, no, that was smart. So that's pretty cool to get two of these guys helping you out with that as well. What's the difference between 2.0 that you're coming out with versus 1.0? And I said, I, I'm just looking on the Indiegogo page right now. It looks like you've got about 1.8 million and you're trying to get only 50,000. For us, the crowdfunding is more of a way. So we, we launched a campaign, I think it's 50 days ago. Basically, we are doing something pretty ambitious. You know, it's like pretty aggressive you know, launch. You know, in the third year of a company, launch for product that has technology and software inside, like pretty ambitious. One thing that we learned a lot with our first campaign is that there is a lot of learning in taking pre-orders because we were able before placing, we were ready for manufacturing, we tested everything, the prototypes were already approved, validated, or of engineering pilots. But before placing the orders, we launched a crowdfunding campaign and now we know exactly how many people like the black, how many people like the blue, how many people like the check, the cabin, every product. And we can actually produce with a more accurate forecast without having to get a lot of inventory that then maybe takes a year to sell or something. So that, that's the reason for a crowdfunding campaign. It's not that much about the goal and the money, it's about the learnings. Actually, before it's been for the past 50 days, we keep getting hundreds and hundreds of inbound ideas from customers saying like, I love this, I don't like that. So we are already learning before shipping the product that's priceless you know yeah that makes sense so it's like a more getting stuff from the customer experience understanding that be kind of more marketing than really just again so well i have one question when i'm looking at it it says that's gps plus 3g tracking do people have to like pay monthly in order to have something that has a gps signal on it like how are you able to do that part it's a very good question that's actually one of the most asked questions <laughs> yeah because that's what i'm thinking it's a smart idea but i'm like wait how are you able to do code or what yeah so go ahead and tell us we should have already fixed that actually you shouldn't be asking this but no you don't pay anything it's free we have a partnership with Telefonica, which is one of the largest carriers company in the world. They have their own partnerships with all the global carriers. The product comes with a SIM card inside and works globally. The 3G module has, you know, it um, works in every country. What we do is we pay and we include that costing within the product because the amount of data that we need to actually track the product is not that much. So we can actually afford it. It's not like you're looking at YouTube videos. Let's touch on this a little bit more. Was there, are there products that do something similar? How were you able to come up with this? Use it. I mean, I didn't even know that Telefonica is a partner because I'm thinking if you're going to different countries, is it not going to work there or whatever? Tell us more. No, so I mean, basically the, the car, I know, AT&T, T-Mobile, and then there are hundreds. Some of them, they w work just like locally in a country, I don't know, Brazil or Canada, or maybe only US actually. And some of them, they are bigger. I think these three are the, the largest one, AT&T, T-Mobile, and Telefonica. They have their own partnerships with the other carriers to work everywhere. So the SIM card has the ability, the data plan of the SIM card, basically it's already automatically set into roaming. You don't need to do anything. That's just taken care of by the SIM card. 
but how were you able to figure this out to put that G because that seems like a huge deal. Like that may be the number one feature. It almost seems like on the suitcase. It was pretty hard. I mean, the idea was always there. I think that the difficult part was to execution. Yes. That's always the hardest part. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, that's not a hard idea to come up with. It's smart, but you're like, how the hell are we able to going to get this done? So tell us. No, I mean, we had one challenge, which was, we had three challenges. One was to actually know if the cost structure from the data plan would make sense. Then the other part was the hardware. And then the other part was the marketing side. So how do we market? From a hardware perspective, when we were in Asia, basically, we went to all of the module manufacturers for 3G and GPS. We sit down with all of them. I have probably met, I don't know, seven or eight. And there aren't many, actually, in the world. They all manufacture for the same guys. Apple, Samsung, cars with GPS, they all are made by the same manufacturer. We sit down and say, okay, this is a new product. We think that this is going to be the future. Do you have something that works for us? And we sort of, in a way, found a few options that could work for us, changing a few components here and there. And then from the other side, we needed the software, which was doing the same thing with the carriers. And then when we sit down with them, we realized that they wanted this to happen. Imagine you are, I don't know, I don't want to say a name. Imagine you're a big carrier. I don't want to get into trouble. <laughs> Imagine you're a big carrier and you make money with phone calls and SMS, internet, and now you're realizing that more and more there's Wi-Fi everywhere. People don't make phone calls anymore. They don't they send less and less SMS. So you have a risk, huge risk in the long term. Now, you know, Internet of Things and all these products can be connected. And maybe potentially every product that you have in your house could be taking data from somewhere. So you want to, you know, invest in this. So actually, they were all very supportive into how can we make this happen? You guys have something that other guys don't have. The big guys, they don't want to make this. And then the small guys, they cannot trust into put on names there. But the difference with us is that we were already there with a product that had 10,000 units sold in 30 days. So we could scale and say, okay, this is a business opportunity as well. And they were very supportive in providing a very good data plan in, in our SIM cards. That was a challenging part. And then from a marketing side, we haven't communicated this very well. That's why you're asking. So we haven't succeeded that. Well, I don't think most people think about no, it really no, until no, after the fact. It is, it is. All they care is about the results, right? No, but people do ask this, you know, it's like, what GPS, which is okay, another bill? No. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. No, no, no. That's not the idea. How much does it cost you totally to put it in? Are you have to pay those people per month or what? For the data plan? No, we actually, we have, a, in a way, our own software that manages all the SIM cards. So basically, we take a number of flights average that our users do. We activate and deactivate the SIM cards remotely according to if they are plugging in their suitcase or not using it. It's done automatically. It's not that, that hard to do, actually. It was hard to come up with. We are only taking very, very, very little data only when the suitcase goes on and then it shuts down. So there's no monthly fee and there's almost no cost associated. Not because there isn't. How about to you guys? You guys have to pay it, right? Yes, but it's not something that we cannot absorb. I mean, can you give me like estimation? How much? I imagine you break it down per bag, how much that might cost to do. No, it's a few dollars. It's not something. That's pretty good. How does the GPS know if I'm, do I need to turn something on to like? It's also an amazing question. <laughs> So that's where the secret lies. What the suitcase does is the suitcase actually it's on and off with a certain frequency that we are constantly adjusting. So that's why I don't have the exact number because we are actually testing all the time, you know, every 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes to see how it performs. But the way it works is the suitcase is always getting an estimated location just because it's getting on and opening sessions from time to time. And then 
if you request a precise location, the suitcase, when it connects to the internet, asks if there's an SMS for her, and she gets an SMS with specific instructions of turn on the GPS, get the precise location, send them back to our servers, and then the users get the precise location. So in that way, we have a product. I mean, also GPS and 3G, they take a lot of battery, and the product battery lasts for 30 days. So this way, it's very battery efficiency and very data efficient. So only when the user needs a precise location, this way we can actually, we only take battery and, and data when the user requests for it. And then if you go to the to the average, it's not that the suitcase is always taking data. No, I mean, that seems super smart too, that, that would cut down your cost a lot. Cause no, otherwise it's impossible. If it's in my closet and it's just going off left and right, then your data is going to be I wouldn't be here. 100x, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be here. And then the other thing that it does is, but that's more on the side of the technology of the hardware side, not just on the GPS and the 3G. There are some sensor pressure and accelerometer that automatically set the suitcase in airplane mode when it's departing, and then it goes on again when it lands. So the user doesn't have to be thinking on putting the suitcase in airplane mode or anything. So it seems like almost all tech play and GPS play more than anything, right? Into the luggage. It took us two years. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Cause you're, you're, I'm trying to think, there's all smart things to think about. Like we can all think of ideas, but it's actually like figuring out how to do them yeah. is the actual issue. I think so. Yeah. Was it just enough networking and talking to smart people to try to figure out how to make all these components work or, or one of y'all more technology founders, like tell us about the partnership and, and how you've been able to grow from like day one of making this technology to right now. The technology was a challenge, especially to prove it. We had that clear from, I won't say day one, but day two probably. <laughs> but once the technology was made, the major problem is an experience problem, not a technology problem. It's not, I mean, of course, this sounds like very sophisticated because it is actually, you know, flights and pressure and GPS and 3G. But the secret is not that much into the technology, but into the experience, how that technology actually interacts with the users. And I think that's what actually has changed by a lot in Series 2. Now, there are minor changes on the experience that impact a lot, which is that the user doesn't have to be thinking on, you know, requesting or connecting, charging, and there are battery efficiency, you know, messages, notifications. The whole experience has changed to be seamless, which wasn't on the first product. But going back to your question, sorry, I was thinking on, <laughs> on the users. I'm always thinking on the users. To your question, no, the challenge, again, we had everything mocked up. We had the prototypes working, but I think one clever thing that we did from day one is we went to Asia. So today, every technology, every electronic component is manufactured in Asia. From the earphones that I'm using, the computer that I have in front of me, which is my Apple, I have a Dell over there, which is saying there, my iPhone here. Everything that I look here is made in Asia, everything. Even, I don't know, cars, you know, I've been to places where they manufacture Mercedes-Benz. Once you're there, you realize that. When you're there, you see, okay, this is the guy, these are the guys who we need to ask for advice in this, right? In this kind, in this part of the technology. Because when you sit down and you see everything that there is something that fits your needs, there is. Of course, it's, you need to make that work. That's a challenge as well. But I, I would say that in terms of the technology on the hardware side, our secret was to be there with the manufacturers of these technology components, the luggage components, and make them work together. Our supply chain today has 16 suppliers, from the GPS modules, the batteries, the electromechanical lock, the weight sensors, the wheels, the plastics. You get 16 suppliers. 
and make them work together to get a good product, that was the most challenging thing we ever made. And we had to be there for that. It's not something that you can think on your computer, make some drawings, send an email, do a few Skype calls. That's impossible. How were you find those people in China? And I, mean, I can't even imagine going with that many manufacturers, but can you just give us a story or two of, of maybe the yes, first of couple? Because that seems super hard, especially if you're all of y'all are from Argentina as well, so you're not yeah. you're not Asian? Yeah. Well, at that moment, we, we weren't living in Argentina, but yes, originally, yes. No, one of my partners, Tommy, he's a CEO at Bluesmart. He had some previous experience with his previous company, manufacturing way more simple stuff, but he already know how to move in Asia, which is already one thing. You might not know the work and the factories, but you know how to move in Asia. That's a lot already, <laughs> how to move around. The first trip we made, we went, we made a list. We sent, I would say, 200 emails to 200 factories, luggage factories, soft goods factories, electronics. We had no idea. We sent emails to everyone. We got, I would say, 25 replies, and we arranged meeting with 15 factories. How many emails did he send out to get 25 replies? Uh, around 200, probably. Yeah, that's pretty good. We had a good pitch, and he had some relations because of his previous trip. So it's not like, hey, this is Tommy, you don't know me. But so some of them were recommending us to other factories, but it wasn't like a smart suitcase factory because it wasn't a smart suitcase. <laughs> You're right? gonna make that. You're gonna make that, right? So when you when you send an email to a luggage factory, they say, okay, I can make the suitcase. I have no idea how to make that computer. And when you send an email to the computer guys, which they make, I don't know, music devices, speakers, even guitars or computers, they know electronics, they know plastic, they know screens. They have no idea on how to make a, I don't know, fabrics and stitching and wheels. No idea. Which it sounds crazy, but it's very different industries. So on our first trip, we had four meetings in Taiwan, five in Shanghai, and five, I would say, in, in Shenzhen, and then the rest spread around. We went to Taiwan. We had three luggage factories. And I remember arriving there with our design. We've been working for, I don't know, seven or eight months. I went to the first factory. They were huge. They were making, I think, 8,000 suitcases a day for many companies that you might know. They weren't the best quality, but you know, we were there. So let's see what they have to say. At that moment, nobody knew about this. And we were just trying to get an idea on how much it's going to cost to make a product. Basically, what they say was that it was impossible. No, this is no way this could happen. Making a computer is not going to pass the test. And they had a lot of feedback into, you know, the zippers and the wheels, what we were trying to do. I remember I left the meeting very disappointed and said, okay, this guy don't know anything. Let's go to the next meeting. And we went to the next meeting and I got the same feedback. And I said, okay, maybe this is not the city <laughs> in which we need to be. And then the third meeting was the same. And then I said, okay, we need to change everything if we want to make this happen. You know, the design was great from a concept side, but it was impossible. Probably it wasn't impossible to make, but it was gonna be impossible to change the mindset of these guys to make it happen. We already started to plan on the, the change we need to make, and then we went to the electronic guys. The same thing happened. After our first trip to China, which was probably 20 days, came back, remade everything based on how to think the product now, not from a user perspective, from a supply chain perspective. We came back to China. <laughs> that time we were more ready. We knew everything we were gonna say. And then the challenge was the electronic guys didn't want to work with the suitcase guys and the suitcase guys didn't want to make the electronics. So who was working with who? And that's when we realized, okay, we're going to have to be there and be the nexus. It's not that one is going to take the responsibility for the product. It's going to be us. It's not that the luggage guy is going to buy the electronics or vice versa. So what do you think about that group call? That was good. It's cool because you get to see what other people are doing. They're kind of the same stage as me. Hopefully that was helpful. 
Definitely. Yeah. Actually, a lot of stuff. The Upwork thing was very interesting. You're basically, after they made the luggage, you're bringing it over to the other factory to put the electronics in or were they talking directly? Eventually, what happened actually is that we launched a crowdfunding campaign that was probably five months later after our first trip. Once we got the first prototypes made by the manufacturers, but we assembly ourselves, we just need to prove that it was possible to make and then see if someone would want to pay something for that idea. And then when we sold $2 million in 60 days, we came back. At that moment, the leverage had changed. We had met already with 50 people. A lot of them said no, but we reach out again with a link to the website and say, hey guys, we just sold 10,000 units in 60 days. Are you really sure you don't want to make this? And then the inbound was completely different. They wanted to make our product. Now you're putting them through the ringer? Now you're making them? I'm kidding. In a way, yes, but not in a bad way. What we were able to do at that moment was we were able to choose the best suppliers. That was a strategy, basically, not negotiate, of course, better. But the most important thing was, okay, now that we have this, all this interest, let's go even higher and find the best suppliers in the world. And that's how we, you know, find our current partners, which are amazing. Well, that sounds great. We're getting closer up and up and then you get something to do after this. So if you're an entrepreneur that's listening right now, what would be your advice or suggestions to them in starting like a product company similar to yours? I will say that you had a question before that you asked me. I think one, when we met before, it was like, did you have a, we made it moment? I would say, no, we haven't got there. I know we will, but it's not now and it's not anytime soon. We did have a few turning points, but I will say that in terms of advice, try to get as much advice as possible from as many different people. And then I will say that the most important thing is to get advice from people who failed and not from people who succeeded. I think that I got thousands and thousands from, of advice. I am, I'm like, this is my favorite thing in the world is to ask someone for, for advice. My years, my reading so far is that when I ask advice to people that has succeeded, it actually takes a lot of years for them to understand why they really succeeded, right? So if you're going to ask advice from someone who succeeded, ask advice to someone old. But if you want to ask advice to people around you that in the same, you know, in the same place or similar places, people who failed, they know immediately why they fucked up. And that's priceless advice, which the guy who succeeded, he doesn't really know. There, there are too many things going on. I think I'll probably say that most of the time, not every time, but most of the time, doing something wrong is better than doing nothing because, you know, even, even if you get it wrong, you will learn and you will improve and probably never give up. <laughs> I think advice for, especially if you're in the super early moments is with the team that you're working with and founders and, you know, the, the team always be transparent and straightforward. That's how you improve faster. And then... I would say the last advice is forget everything I said. And it's, I mean, nobody knows your business more than you. Everybody will say something, but you're the only one who knows the shit you're going through. <laughs> no, I, we appreciate all those points. I don't know if we ever mentioned, was there a, I, I know you wrote down some notes. I want to make sure we didn't skip over anything before we close, but was there ever a hardest moment about doing this whole thing? Part where you thought you might quit and didn't? From a business perspective, I will say at the early moments, no one believing in us. That was like super hard. The way we overcome that was convincing ourselves that that made sense and talking to people who actually was going to need what we were making. I think that, of course, the, the traveling part, we had no idea how hard it's going to be. And sometimes it got very difficult so far. And that was super challenging. And from a personal point of view, I will say that everything moved so fast that you're learning and doing at the same time. And in your mind, that, that can get 
very tricky. There's no other way to do it. You need to do and learn, do and learn all the time. But you can get a little bit lonely because nobody understands what you're doing. So that's why communication, I would say, is so important. Talk all the time about what you're doing and why, even if you know you get tired. I think that's an uncertainty is the, the tricky part. Every day you think you might die, you know, what you're doing. Yeah, well, that's great. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. If, if someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out and say thank you? An email, probably, a at bluesmart.com. All right. And yeah, we'll throw that in the show notes. Thank you again for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you, man. I think what you're doing is great. Can't wait to hear the other guys. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's great. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Hey there, millionaire interview listener. Thank you again for tuning in to this episode. If you enjoyed it and want to show us a little support, we would really appreciate a five-star review. It helps other listeners find the show so they can enjoy it just like you. And if you're looking for more episodes that are in the product niche, then try episode 11 with Bottle Breacher founder Eli Crane or episode 13 with Sammy of BlackSocks.com or try episode 18 with Yak Gear founder Bill Bragman. As always, thanks again for tuning in and have a great day. Do you want to support the show? Well, become a fucking Patreon member. I've got all these awesome free episodes for you, and I need your help. So, why don't you help a brother out? Become a Patreon member today.